0: O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy. Grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Well, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is so exciting to be able to be together on this Easter morning. Whew. Been waiting for this. Well, the Apostle John's entire gospel had one purpose, one singular purpose, and he articulates it right at the end of the chapter that we just read a minute ago when he says in verse 31, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose and through him God's purpose is that all the people who would read this particular gospel account that they would believe, that they would find faith in Jesus. And this Easter passage that we just read about Mary is one of the best places where we can talk a little bit about what faith really is. So let me read a couple of the verses that we read just to bring us back into this moment. Hear the word of the Lord from verse 14 of John 20. Having said this, Mary turned around and said to Jesus, "I saw, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, we're going to talk about faith. No better time than Easter to talk about faith. And this particular passage is going to show us kind of unwrap two key elements one, that faith is a gift, and the second, that faith comes by grace, that faith is a gift. And that faith comes by grace. First, faith is a gift. Mary Magdalene is the only one at the tomb on that Sunday morning, not the disciples. Now, meanwhile, for the past, well, almost a year and a half or so, Jesus has been saying repeatedly to his disciples in some of his teaching that he was going to what? Die and then rise again. Luke 9 in particular points out, this is about a year and a half before Jesus actually dies. He says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And yet none of the disciples go to the tomb. None of them are looking for a resurrected Jesus. They don't even do a drive-by. It's not even on their radar until Mary shows up the first time. Even the chief priests knew that the third day was significant. They put a guard at the tomb because they did, they'd heard, listen, if there's this resurrected Jesus, because if they steal his body and say he's resurrected, we need to protect that narrative, right? So we're going to put some guards at the tomb. So the chief priests know that the third day is a thing. But the disciples have no way of seeing it. Now, don't get me wrong. The disciples love Jesus. They've been moved. They've been impacted. They've been changed by his miracles and by his by his teaching. But they simply, simply haven't believed the most crucial thing he told them his whole life—that indeed it had happened. And of course, neither does Mary. She's been listening too. She's been a part of the conversation. And even Mary finds herself, though she is at the tomb, in verse 13, she says, they have taken away my Lord. That's the only story in her heart or in her mind. Mary doesn't believe. Now, she's being pursued by, in her grief by, by two angels. She's got Jesus right behind her, kind of breathing down her neck. She's seen an empty tomb, and still she feels alone. She's despairing. Jesus is right there. The new reality is right there in front of her, and she cannot see it, which reminds me a lot of me, and maybe reminds you a little bit of you. Well, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that transformational faith, the kind of faith that comes in the gospel, in Jesus, that, and, Jesus and a Jesus that really is not a figment of our imagination or as we'd like him to be, this kind of life-altering, life-centering faith is not something we're capable of on our own. It's just not. And, and, if, and if his disciples and, and if Mary and all the others couldn't see it after hearing from him and, and, and seeing his actions and, and watching him do miracles, then I don't think there would be much hope for us either. So what this means is without God intervening, we can't, Believe. We simply can't. Faith has to be a gift. Now, look at, look at how Jesus comes to her, how he, he proves this is the reality. He has to break in on Mary, right? If Jesus just waited and stepped back and waited for Mary to come to the realization that this is Jesus, there would be little hope for her. Because that's not how it works. Salvation is not by works, salvation is not. It's not salvation by us discovering him, it's salvation by him finding us. And he comes after her like so gently and yet so purposefully. I love that that the first thing that Jesus says in his resurrected life is a question about Mary. Woman, Why are you crying? Now, just just think about this for a moment. Maybe just a few moments ago or an hour ago, Jesus was risen from the dead, the most significant climactic event in human history. And Jesus approaches Mary and he asks about her. Gently and tenderly, he asks her about her sorrow. He speaks in to her pain. Is that what your God is like? Is that how Jesus is to you? Do you know him like this? He comes after her so gently, and yet he comes purposefully, because then he asks to her, Why, who are you looking for? Now, I'm, I'm thinking that for the rest of her life, Mary found herself just kind of thinking back, contemplating the dual nature of Jesus' question. Because he wasn't just asking, so Mary, like, who, who are you looking for? No, he's... He's trying to communicate to her, listen, Mary, you love me, I know you do, but your understanding of who I am is too small. You're not searching for the real me, you're, you're trying to find a Jesus that's, that's not exactly the one that exists, the one that I am. I'm something more, he's telling her, something other than what you imagined. And so he has to break in. And you notice, right, it's not Mary going like, whoa, teacher. She's going like, hey, Mary. No, he, he has to speak, right? It's, it's, it's Mary. And then an exclamation, teacher. He has to move towards her. He has to initiate towards her. He has to call her, to break in on her. He has to peel back the veil of blindness in her. Faith is a gift, always. Do you know this tender Jesus? Imminent in the midst of all the realities of our life and yet unwavering about who he really is. It's one of the reasons why A.W. Tozer said famously, one of his most famous sentences is, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And what Jesus is doing with Mary, he's going, Mary... What you think about me is off. You see, like Mary, we're not looking, we're not looking for Jesus as he's declaring himself to be, not a Jesus as he's revealed himself to be. For many of us, we want a, we want a Jesus that works for us, a God that, that affirms our beliefs, that affirms our decisions, that affirms like, you know, our people who in essence, well, let's just be honest, is an echo of us. You know, a Jesus who helps, but who doesn't interfere. We're not believing many of us in in a resurrected Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in glory, ruling over our lives. Yeah, that's not the Jesus we're quite interested in. And we'd like more of a elf on a shelf, Jesus, you know, you bring him out for special occasions, sit him on the shelf, and then, and then if you have a crisis or something goes down, just in case, ask him. Maybe he'll help you. But he's small. He's a last resort when things go wrong. For others of us, we don't see God as small or little. We actually end up seeing him as someone that is never pleased. When I was growing up, I'm well into my 20s, that was really my view of God. I thought that God was keeping score and that Jesus was the messenger that would come to me to let me know, once again, you have not lived up. That was Jesus. You got bad news. You don't measure up, so try harder. Be better. Perform better. And definitely hide your failures and your inconsistencies. Just fake it till you make it. In 1999, God God brought me to this just unraveling season of my life. And I was standing, in a sense, by a tomb, weeping. I was trying to get my arms around, to get my heart around this idea of a different kind of gospel. And one of the ways in which I was doing that was by listening to a, a series about the essence of the gospel on tape. Now, for those of you who don't know what tape is... It's this strange. I don't even know why we used them, but that's what I was doing. I was listening to these these sermons on tape, and and I was running with my Walkman. I don't I don't have a Walkman. I don't really run anymore. So a lot of this is old, as you can tell. But like, I'm running, and, and I am I'm desperate. And, and I'll never forget. It, it's session three. I don't remember the title of the session. It's this "Think All The Glory of the Gospel by a guy named Paul Thompson. It's session three, and he gets to this climactic moment. I was running. I was trying to get ready for a marathon, so I'm running these long runs. Halfway through, I'm having to, like, turn over the tape, you know? And I remember on the backside of number three, and it happened every single time. And by the way, I was running a lot, and so I was listening to those a lot, because every time I was like, I don't think I understand. Let's just start over. I was running in number three, and at one point, Paul just pauses there, and he says, he asks this question, this he said, he says, is there nothing you can do? And I just remember he would get to that place, he would ask that question, and my heart would just would soar up. I was like, I don't know. Is, is, there, is there anything you can do for him to love you more? Is there, is there nothing you can do to have him love you less? And I and I wanted to I, I was like, I don't I don't know. Is is there? After the pause, you'd say, No, there is nothing more, he has done it all. And every single time I just began to cry, just not a good thing while you're trying to run. I just began to, tears would fill my eyes and my heart was swelling. I couldn't believe it could be true. Wasn't he keeping track and clearly I was not measuring up, clearly not, was there nothing else he could do You see, the reason I listened to that series probably a dozen times over the course of eight months was because I couldn't see him, but I could sense he was around somewhere and I had to have him speak my name, Matt, Matt, it's not you, it's me, over and over again, that I would begin to see him. I was slow and hard of heart, It seemed too good to be true, but it was true. It is true. This faith in the real Jesus, not the Jesus we imagine him to be, not the one we're trying to work to get what we want out of him, this faith in him is is a gift. And it changes everything, and that is really good news. But it's a faith in a as a gift from God that, that rests on tangible facts. Like it, it, it's on something, it stands on something. It's not just in the air. You see, we, we live in a world, and increasingly so, where, where faith is something that, you know, if it works for you, if it makes you feel better, if it gives you some modicum of peace, if being a Christian is something that as long as you don't like, you know, pushing on too many other people or, or don't do anything unkind to anyone, that, like if it's good for you, if it, you know, if it enables you to, to, to be a better person or to be more contented with your lot, to have a sense of, I don't know, maybe purpose or meaning, like, good for you. This is your thing. You go. The, but what matters is not whether something works that something helps or something is meaningful. It matters is that it's true. Because if it's true, then it can work and it can be meaningful and it can change you. But if it's not true, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Now, I don't know where you're at. Some of y'all may be still in a skeptic place. You're like, sure. We have this natural 21st century kind of evolved thinking that looks at folks from the first century. I mean, they wore sandals for pity's sake, right? They didn't have closed-toe shoes. Like, how can they know things, right? And so they're kind of primitive, right? That's kind of our little snobbery looking back on the first century people. But you have to realize, wait a minute and go, hold on. Their worldview wasn't our kind of modern scientific, you know, like, Understanding of all those principles as the guiding principles of life worldview, but they did have a worldview. And here's the thing we can look back with all the slobbery in the world, but their worldview had no room or no space for somebody who was dead coming back to life by no means or without any purpose, without understanding. No one had that, neither the Greeks nor the Romans, certainly not the Jews. Maybe everyone at the end, maybe for some, but no, no one's thinking that. That doesn't exist. They didn't understand. They had no sense that a Messiah, if there was going to be a Messiah for the Jews, he certainly was not going to come and die. That was not the story. No, he was going to conquer. So, So these disciples and Mary, like they're thoughtful people. They're not primitive idiots who are like, sure, I don't know, I guess people rise up from the dead now. No, no. They're not dupes. They're trying to work it out. They're thinking through things. They're trying to understand things simply couldn't believe that Jesus would raise from the dead, just like we couldn't believe that Jesus would raise from the dead. It's no different. Which means that something radical had to happen. Something radical had to happen for Mary and for the disciples, for them to shift from like not even showing up on the third day because it wasn't even an idea, it wasn't even a concept, from running around looking for a dead body, even though there's angels and Jesus behind you, something had to happen to alter, to shatter that worldview, to go to have them shift to a place where they're going, I've seen a risen Lord, I've seen the risen Lord. And not just to say it once, but but to testify of it for the entirety of their lives. For some of them at the risk of their lives, and for many at the cost of their lives. David Guzik, in his commentary, says The tomb was opened not to let Jesus' body out, but to let the disciples in, that they and the world may see that he had risen. That he had risen. Now, Maybe maybe you're a doubter today, or you're a seeker, or you're someone who's kind of trying to understand whether or not the things that Christianity promises are, like, real and, and worthwhile, whether they work, maybe. I just want you to do a thought experiment from you, from, with, a, me, with me for a moment. Just, just imagine for a second, or maybe a minute, that it's true. Imagine that it's true. Take, take your doubts and your skepticism, which is, and you just put them on the side for just a minute. You can pick them back up later. They'll be right there. They're not going anywhere. Just, just suspend those for a moment, and just imagine that, that, that the God of the universe who, who, who spun all things that are into life and into being by the word of his power, that, that this God decided that he was going to reach down and meet us because we could not meet him. We couldn't reach to him. And that this, this God came himself and, and actually died. He took all the mess, all the things that are broken in you, all the ways in which you're selfish and, and ugly, all the evil stuff that you just don't know anybody else to know about. And he, and he took that and he paid it. He died for you. Took that on himself. And then he rose from the dead. And in, and in rising from the dead, he, he shed, he shredded all of that death and sin, yours, and of course, all of those who would turn to him, he shed it and shredded it all off of him, leaving it in the tomb, and he walked out. And he's come to meet you. He's come to meet you today, maybe, and, and to call you by name, and to invite you into a, an actual relationship with this God as a good father, and Christ as a, as a good king. Isn't that a story you want to be true? Imagine if it was true that he moved all things for you, that he reached to you because it had to be a gift you couldn't reach to him. Because if it is true, it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. It changes everything about from today until the end of your days. And my invitation to you would be just like one of Jesus' followers who said to Jesus, listen, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe you're at the place where you're like, I, okay, I, I want to believe, so God help my unbelief. Or, or I think I'd like to try to believe, but, but help my unbelief. That is the prayer that God responds to, that he moves. That is the beginning of faith. He is beginning to call your name. Faith is a gift and it rests on facts and the evidence of real eyewitnesses who had their worldview shattered as they believed it. And you're invited to work that out, not just for the first time, but in all of your life. Faith is a gift, but quickly here, faith comes by grace. Why? Why does Jesus choose to reveal himself to Mary? Why does Jesus come to Mary first? It's not a good plan. If you're starting to try, if you're trying to start like some like religious movement that's gonna alter the world, in those days, in that context, you don't start with a woman. Women couldn't even testify in court. Like like their, their testimony didn't count. So this is not a good plan. Why does he start with Mary? Why would he begin with her? By the way, Peter and John were just there. Remember, she goes and she grabs Peter and John. They come, they look, they see there's nobody there. And then they walk and they go back home. And Mary stays and she weeps. And then Jesus shows up. Why does he wait? Why does he show up with her first? because Mary was unworthy and she knew it. You see, in many ways, Mary put the other disciples to shame, right? I mean, spiritually speaking, like she actually is the one who shows up on third day. She she lingers and hangs around. She's, She's wanting to just be near where Jesus is, even if it's just his dead body. She wants to be near him. And yet... When Peter and John and all the other disciples hear from Jesus, hey, listen, because of what I've come to do, you too can be children of God. Do you know what all those guys said? They're like, yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. I can see that happening. Yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, look at, me, look at myself. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. If you don't believe me, two nights before... As Jesus is like, you know, putting a towel around his waist and washing his disciples' feet, telling them about his incoming death, they start arguing about who's the greatest. Like, I'm thinking that's the worst moment in the history of moments to be able to talk about who's awesome and who's not. They're like, yeah, children of God, that, that makes sense. But for Mary Magdalene, when she heard, you can be a child of God, she must have thought, how can that be? Do you know who I am? You see, Luke chapter 8 tells us that Mary had seven demons cast out of her. She was, she's, from Mag, she's from Magdala, which is like basically Las Vegas. And like it's known for, let's just say, all the not good things about Las Vegas. It's known for that. And that's, that's, that's Mary. That's where she's from. And by the way, she carries that name with her. Mary? Magdalene, it's not her last name, people. Like, this is where she's from. She says she has seven demons, which means that she was insane. She would, I mean, she's walking through the streets, maybe half nude, a little bit crazy, violent, and undependable. You remember the other story about the guy who was, who was possessed by a bunch of demons? People were terrified of him. He was cutting himself. He was, he was knocking people over. He was violent. He was wild. And Mary was this wild, violent woman. She had a terrible reputation. All the early church accounts have Mary as a a prostitute. And so when Jesus says, yes, Mary, you can be a child of God. It radically changed her heart. And there simply was no clearer way for Jesus to declare on that Easter Sunday morning that salvation was not for those who are, was, was for those who are devoid of all nobility, those people who are not the deserving. And that's why he comes to Mary first. Tim Keller says, Mary, was on the outside of every single category of insider, outsider the world had. She was a woman, not a man. She was poor, not middle class. She was deranged, not sane. She was immoral, not moral. She was on the outside of everything. This is the gospel. The gospel is that God's salvation does not come on the basis of merit. It doesn't come on the basis of pedigree. It doesn't come on the basis of race, class, or gender pecking order. What is the gospel? The gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is that, listen, the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel is not that you give God a perfect record, but the gospel is is that he gives you a perfect record. The gospel is that it is not your past, which is a determining factor of your relationship with the Father, but it's Christ's past and his record. That's what he's getting across. That he came by grace for the weak, for the poor, not the strong, for the have-nots, that faith would have to come by grace. So let me ask you, like Mary, have you, have you experienced that kind of grace, that kind of earth-shattering, transformative grace? The unmerited faith that comes through faith and that yields life-changing joy and love. I hope you have. And here's the thing, it doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't just come for the Marys. She comes for those who think they're better than the Marys. You see, he chooses Mary by grace, and then what, he did, what does he do? He, he sends Mary to the disciples. And he doesn't send her saying, hey, listen, go tell those failures, you know, that I'm so great, but I failed and denied you within a few minutes after I left. Like not, not, nothing like, no, he says, go and tell who? My brothers. Go tell my brothers. Now, Jesus in the past has called them friends. He's called them disciples. He's called them servants. But he's never talked about them as ones who are in the same family with him because of what he's done. But now it's true. It is finished. They now have, as he says, go and tell them that I'm going to my God and their God. My father and their father they're in. So whether you're like Mary and you know that you're not worthy or you're more like the disciples and you don't just realize how unworthy you are, it matters not. Grace comes by faith to the undeserving and to those who have no merit of their own which is every single one of us, but who rest in the deep down in our soul, knowing that our basis and merit is from another. And what what that understanding creates is an explosion of love. Because what happened to me over the course of that journey on the other side of those runs was that I knew that I was loved that I was no longer striving for merit, no longer trying to impress God, no longer bringing my pedigree to him because I knew it didn't work anyway, but, but instead it remained on him. Do you know that it's on him this morning and not on you? That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus conquered in the grave. And so I don't think there's a better place to end this Sunday morning than for you to hear from the apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Now as a result of works so that no one may boast, no one's proud. Loved ones, the empty tomb is the living reminder that Jesus' work is finished once and for all. We sang it, right? It is finished, he has done it. And now he invites us to believe, to believe him as he actually is, not as we would manufacture him or bend him to be and to trust him in every circumstance of life in every condition of soul, both initially and all along the way. This is the Jesus who was risen today for you and he calls you by name. Let's pray. Father, we... We have to acknowledge that we don't totally understand. We'd love to say that we can wrap our hearts and minds around the reality that you have come, you've died, and that you have risen again. But we only understand partially, and so we come to you by faith, and we believe that just like you came to Mary and invited her to trust you, that we are inviting us to trust you with whatever's going on in our life right now and ultimately for the day in which we will long for a need resurrection in you. And so we thank you for the surety we have in Jesus. That we we have something to hang on to, to, to hold fast to when things are shifting and moving. Things seem broken when we seem broken. And Lord, we ask that you would give us more faith, that you would help us overcome our unbelief and see you as you really are because that is the most beautiful God there is, you as you really are, which is Jesus Christ dying for us and raised for our justification. So we pray these things, thanking you, worshiping you, praising you this morning in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.